Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. This is our series where we discuss different genetic diseases with physicians who treat patients with these conditions. And today, we're going to be talking about hemophilia. We welcome Dr. Nigel Key, the Harold Roberts Distinguished Professor of Medicine in our Division of Hematology and Oncology. Dr. Key is the director of the UNC Hemophilia and Thrombosis Center. Welcome, Dr. Key. Thank you. So for starters, what is hemophilia? Well, hemophilia is an inherited disorder which uh, causes a tendency to bleed easily, and it affects about one in every 10,000 of the population. So there may be 20,000, 25,000 patients with hemophilia in the United States. And there are two different kinds of hemophilia, right? Hemophilia A and hemophilia B. Yeah, yes, indeed. So hemophilia is a, a genetic deficiency of one of the coagulation factors or clotting factors that we all use on a daily basis when we cut ourselves shaving to prevent excessive bleeding or to prevent bleeding after surgery. Hemophilia A is about is is a deficiency of factor eight, so-called clotting factor eight, and hemophilia B uh, is a deficiency of clotting factor nine, and so eight or nine hemophilia A or B, hemophilia A is about four times as common as hemophilia B. And when were those conditions first recognized? Well, it's interesting history because um, actually the because of the inheritance pattern, which I think we'll discuss in a little while, uh, there are references to hemophilia going back to what is called a Babylonian Talmud in the Jewish faith. It uh, precedes uh, uh, the birth, uh, it, uh, or is around the time of Christ, actually that uh, particularly the manifestation of excessive bleeding or even death was circumcision. So it wasn't called hemophilia, of course, but it was clearly hemophilia. And because hemophilia A or factor eight deficiency is more common, is that why it was recognized earlier than hemophilia B or factor nine deficiency? Well, it, it wasn't appreciated actually in that there are two types of hemophilia because they look exactly the same in terms of how they behave and how the inheritance pattern and so on. So it was just called hemophilia first. And it wasn't until the 1900s that it was realized that there were really two different subtypes. And, uh, but otherwise, they, they look identical in a clinical sense. How, how are they inherited? They're inherited in a pattern that's called X-linked recessive. Now, what that means is that there are a number of disorders in medicine, and hemophilia A and B are examples of them, where women can be carriers of the gene uh, for hemophilia but uh, are not generally affected. I mean, let's say they're not affected, um, but they can pass it on to male offspring who then may inherit the, the, the gene from their, their mother and develop hemophilia. So that's the X-linked refers to the fact that it's on the X chromosome. Women have two X chromosomes. Men only have one. And so what I usually say to patients or a carrier is that, you know, you have one well-functioning X chromosome and one that has the hemophilia gene. And whether your son has hemophilia depends on 
the uh, the toss of the dice as to whether he gets uh, the quote good or quote bad uh, X chromosome. So the symptoms of both hemophilia A and B are identical. Yes. And what, what are those? Bleeding, as you point out, from common causes. Right. Well, so something we haven't um, sort of mentioned so far is that it, hemophilia comes in different flavors. It comes, uh, what I mean by that is that um, the severity of the disease determines what the clinical presentation, what the age of presentation, and what the manifestations of the disease are. That is to say that severe hemophilia, which accounts for about half of the hemo patients with hemophilia, have less than 1% of whether it be factor eight or factor nine. And these are patients who generally will present uh, early in childhood. When they start to walk, these children will develop bleeds into joints and the parents will recognize this. And frequently they present before that. They may have presented with bleeding from circumcision or something of that nature. There's also a problem in that some children with hemophilia present um, as an abused child to the social services because of a lot of bruising and so on. And in fact, they're not abused children. And it comes to light that there is a reason for that. But thankfully, about two-thirds of the time, the hemophilia is anticipated because of a family history. But even when you have perfect family history, about a third of cases are new cases. They're what's called spontaneous genetic mutations, and so it can be unexpected in a family that has no family history. So, um, so some of our patients are diagnosed very early because it's anticipated they could have hemophilia, and it's picked up early with a blood test we'll talk about, but um, others sort of wait until they present with bleeding. If you have more than 1% of either factor eight or factor nine, the chances of having a milder disease becomes uh, a reality. That's how, right. Mm -hmm. How much how much factor does one need? Well, that's a a, a good question. We, we but it's it's generally what we call moderate hemophilia is about less than five percent. So a little bit up to five percent of normal, and those patients can have the spontaneous bleeds that severe hemophilia patients get into joints and muscles. Mild hemophilia is considered over 5%, and those patients may not come to attention until adulthood or after surgery or something like that. I remember a professional hockey player that I diagnosed huh. with mild hemophilia. We've had instances like that. We've had quite a few military who have come up and been diagnosed with hemophilia who, you know, um, really haven't had a problem, except when they've been in surgery or had a major trauma. And then it, the disease becomes recognized. And then it becomes, or hopefully it becomes recognized, but it may well present later in life is the point. So. How does one test for, for hemophilia? So I mentioned that there's a deficiency of uh, either factor eight or factor nine in the blood. And we fortunately, we have a very uh, good test for that. We can just measure the level. And what we've been talking about, uh, the percent of the clotting factor means percentage of the average normal. If we say that the, the average person has 100%, although it actually varies, we can measure that in the blood and determine whether factor eight level is 1%, 3%, 5%, or whatever with a pretty good and accurate blood test. How do you treat these patients now and then 
later on, we'll talk about the exciting opportunities of gene therapy. Yeah. But currently, what's the what's the most usual therapy? Well, the most usual therapy is replacement of the the, the missing clotting factor, which has been really and still is the standard of care since the 1970s. And unfortunately, it has to be given intravenously. So um, patients who require it, and this is the severe or moderate patients, um, either they're trained to give it themselves or a family member. So it means accessing their veins and, and keeping the factor at home and Getting mixing it up and giving it when they think a bleed is coming on. They're trained to do that. And they start getting trained at the age of about seven or eight, these kids, to actually do this. Huh. And um, I don't know if there are other disorders in which patients are trained to give intravenous injections at home as the standard of care, but it's long been the standard in hemophilia. Because it's so important to get the factor back in as quickly yes. as quickly as possible how do you actually get children young adults to to learn to do this and then to give factor to themselves early enough giving putting in an iv doesn't feel good but i suppose the pain from the bleeding is even worse yeah well it starts earlier than that because it's you know often the parents will have to do it in the first few years of life and Getting into veins in little chubby babies can be very difficult. So uh, sometimes in early life, the, the porticath, the central venous access device that stays in, that the parent can access, uh, has to be done. But we get them out as soon as possible and train them as soon as possible. One of the, um, and this is a lot of what our, our nurses do, but. Um, one of the great um, forums for teaching kids is uh, Hemophilia Summer Camp, where they, you know, maybe a hundred children with hemophilia there, and they see each other doing it. And you know, at seven or eight years old, they they kind of have an intensive experience with the nurses supervising and teaching them how to do it. So, you know, kids are really quite resilient, and they they frequently will do it for themselves at an early age. What do you do before an operation or a dental procedure? Somebody with severe disease, do you prophylactic? Yes, give it to exactly. So, you know, that um, apart from the, the severe patients having these spontaneous joint and muscle bleeds, the we absolutely want to know when our patients are having procedures, be it dental or surgery, so that we can determine um, how to prevent them from having bleeding after the procedure. And frequently, not always, that will involve an infusion of a clotting factor given, you know, within an hour of the procedure. What issues or concerns do women have? The issue with, with uh, women carriers is that on average, they will have 50% of that clotting factor level if they're a carrier factor eight and that's or plenty. nine. And that's plenty. But there's a strange phenomenon in nature when we're in the embryo and in the in the womb that it's called lionization but it, it means that some women carriers are very skewed they actually have factor eight or nine levels that are are quite low they can be you know five percent ten percent so they sort of behave like a mild well they are a mild hemophiliac um and so menstruation can be an issue. Bleeding after procedures can be an issue. It's quite variable among women because it's a random procedure how much factor eight they end up with or factor nine. How do patients deal with pain? 
Well, the, let me preface that, the answer, by saying that the, the care of hemophilia patients has dramatically changed over the last 30 years, where instead of um, just treating bleeds when they occur early, which might be twice a month for a severe hemophilia patients, we're now in the era of what's called prophylaxis. So these patients will take clotting factor on a regular basis throughout the week to prevent bleeds. So I'm seeing kids young adults who are coming through from the pediatricians that are being passed over to our care in the adult clinic who are 18, 20 years old with near pristine joint function. Uh -huh. I have a, a group of hemophilia patients who are 45 years and above, many of whom have very destructive joint disease, arthritis and, and destructive joint disease that is beyond the point where clotting factor is going to uh, do much uh, except prevent further bleeding, but certainly the joint is already damaged. So it's a generational thing, really, that if our biggest issue is trying to maintain compliance with young adults as they move into independence from mom, um, and go to college and start work and so on uh, so that they understand the importance of um, prevention, uh, essentially. So, but to answer your question direct, more directly, some are, certainly chronic joint pain is an issue in hemophilia. And um, there may be a situation where what we try to do is identify if a particular joint would be amenable to orthopedic procedure. We work a lot with our orthopedic colleagues, whether it be total joint replacement, uh, hips and knees particularly, some ankles, some shoulders. Uh, there are other fusion, joint fusion uh, procedures, etc. That So we work, it's important to have an orthopedist who sort of understands hemophilia and, and its issues. What's the life expectancy of somebody in the more modern era? Uh, for somebody who's 20 years old right now, for example, and who does prophylactic therapy. So that uh, so the, the life expectancy in 1960 was 11 years of age for a hemophilia patient oh. with severe disease. Now it's basically normal. It's basically normal um, with good treatment in developed countries. It's basically normal. We've We've had a number of what's called twinning activities with developing countries throughout the world. In my experience, we're on our fourth one right now with Zimbabwe. If you go to Zimbabwe and look at uh, the outcomes in hemophilia patients, they're uh, very different from here. That's uh, You can see the effect of not having treatment on life expectancy and also joint damage and so on. In Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe, we also previously uh, worked with Republic of Georgia, with Armenia, and with Ethiopia, and they're all in various stages of development of their hemophilia programs, but um, the so-called World Federation of Hemophilia, which I used to be on the board of, uh, is a very effective organization in bringing or initiating care in these countries that can be remarkably successful, actually, despite the fact that it's a rare and expensive disease to treat with the right advocacy and involvement of patient groups, particularly, as well as physicians. It can be very effective. Gene therapy is on the horizon. Tell, uh, us, uh, you know, tell us about it. So gene therapy has been the promise in hemophilia for um, 15 years or more. And 
Like most therapies in medicine, uh, it's been two steps forward, one step back, back to the lab, work this out, two steps forward, one back, over that period. We kind of went through the glass ceiling about a year, 18 months ago, where the, the, the essential major barriers have, I would say, have been largely overcome at this point. So there is a rush, actually. There is a, uh, um, from, from having uh, academic endeavors in gene therapy in a few really good centers, including our own, there is now a, a six or eight companies that are getting into clinical trials in gene therapy, recognizing that it's just around the corner. So it's looking extremely viable and possible. How often do patients develop an immune response to either the factor that they're getting prophylactically or I suppose even a gene therapy approach? Yeah, and that that is the big bugaboo still in hemophilia. Um, many of our uh, Patients in the in the 70s and 80s, the big bugaboo then with plasma-derived clotting factor was blood-borne viruses, particularly HIV and hepatitis C. That era is done, it's finished. We're using synthetic clotting factors, thank goodness. The big problem or the major complication now is when a patient develops an antibody to the infused factor eight or factor nine. A foreign protein. A foreign protein to them. In severe hemophilia, it's estimated that at some time in their life in severe hemophilia A, about one in four patients, maybe mm. as much as one in three, will develop an inhibitor. Fortunately, sometimes it goes away spontaneously, but when it doesn't and it's high level, it's it's a major clinical challenge. It's pretty rare in hemophilia B, but we have a few cases. It's much less common, however. What can be done about this uh, inhibitory antibody? So in severe hemophilia, um, these antibodies are picked up usually in the small children once they start, once their bodies start to get exposed to the clotting factor in early life. So the pediatricians will immediately try to actually get rid of this antibody. And the way they do it is through a process known as immune tolerance induction. So what they do is uh, step up significantly the dosing and the frequency of factor eight infusions to train the patient's immune system to, to give up on making these antibodies against the clotting factor. When you go to the allergist with a bee sting allergy, they do something similar. They train your immune system to give up on making that um, yeah. life-threatening antibody that you know can cause bee sting allergy. So it's sort of a good analogy to that, but it can take months to even a couple of years or so, and it's about 70% successful. Not always successful. Peanut allergy. They're the whole trial to get rid of peanut allergy by using a lot of peanut protein. Yeah. Sort of interesting. The immune system is interesting. <laughs> if one thinks forward what gene therapy could look like, uh, how would it work? Well, so uh, the way it works is that, as I mentioned, the, the, the hemophilia patient has a gene which is they've inherited, which is not making the factor eight or factor nine as it should. So 
this gene therapy is really a, another way of delivering the missing clotting factor. But in that case, we fool the patient's um, genetic system into making the protein that it otherwise is defective in. And the way this is done is to use a... It's essentially a virus, but it's it's not a virus that causes disease. And it's sort of the Trojan horse. You load it up with the gene for factor eight or factor nine. You inject it one time hmm. intravenously. It's trained to go to the liver where it's, it sets up residence and starts producing the factor eight or factor nine. And the... In the last year, we're finding out that we can achieve essentially normal levels of either factor eight or nine. A few years ago, we were delighted to to get to three percent, five percent, and it's just as I mentioned. Uh, of course, it's uh, you, you know there's always provisos, but generally speaking, the results are looking very, very encouraging. Great! What yeah. a wonderful promise. Yeah. How long does it take for that therapy to work? Well, you start to see the patient making their own factor eight or factor nine within a week, right. actually. Um, but it peaks out at um, several weeks, three, four, five weeks. And then it stays at that level. You know, oh. Some people are going to be getting 15%. Some are going to be getting 80%. There's a little bit of unpredictability as yet as to in general, as to how high they will uh, peak out at. But once it sort of hits its plateau, it generally stays there. Mm -hmm. So we think that it's um, uh, the, the question is, how is one time good to go for the rest of your life? And we'll, we'll have to see. We know that from the hemophilia dogs here at Chapel Hill that they're, they're about 10 years out. And that's a very good model of human disease. So it looks extremely promising, but it's not impossible that um, a second treatment could be required. Amazing when when compares that to regular prophylactic infusions. Yes. What yes. are the top questions or concerns that patients ask you? Well, bear in mind that I'm a, a adult treater. Um, so I would just, again, preface this by saying as a pediatrician, sometimes this comes as an enormous shock to the family if there's no family history. Everybody wants uh, a, a child with, who is 100% healthy. The good news is that, you know, children born with hemophilia now can look forward to a very bright future. As an adult treater, um, we, these patients have had it their whole life after all, except for some of the mild patients who show up later. And um, it's unfortunate, but a reality that uh, it's an expensive disease to treat and having access to treatment therapies is a, still a big issue from a medical insurance standpoint. It varies from state to state, the adult coverage. Uh, we do everything we can do, uh, but we spend a lot of time getting patients who don't have insurance or subadequate insurance hooked up with a way to get them clotting factor, and somehow we struggle through it. Um, many of the manufacturers have programs to help patients. So I'd say access to, to the treatment they need, is, as it is in the developing world, is still, still a big con concern right. here. 
Where can someone find out more information about hemophilia, a reliable source, in other words? So I, I would say that the, um, uh, the National Hemophilia Foundation, which is based in New York, it's been around for 50 years or so, is a reliable source of uh, monographs and, and educational materials. There is a system of hemophilia treatment centers throughout the U.S. There's about 130 of them. In North Carolina, we have uh, now four going on five soon, where these are not always in uh, just the largest hospital, but they're designated to have special expertise in that area. Um, the World Federation of Hemophilia also has some really good patient. It's a patient-based organization, as is the National Hemophilia Foundation. The National Hemophilia Foundation has chapters in every state here in North Carolina. It's called Hemophilia North Carolina. These are reliable sources for patients to, to find out about the disease. Thank you so much, Dr. Key, for spending time with us today. You're welcome. Thanks so much to our listeners for tuning in. This episode completes our series focused on genetic diseases. Please stay tuned for new episodes. You can subscribe to The Cherish Corner on iTunes, SoundCloud, or like us on Facebook. Thanks.